Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have wonderful guest, Daniel Dreisbach. Did I say your last name right? You did very well with that. Wow, thank you. Did I say your first name right? <laughs> well, that's a different matter. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm working on the first name. It is a biblical name, and that's uh, fitting with our topic today because Dr. Dreisbach is the author of this book, and it's called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. And let's see if I can get it on there. Can you see it? Everybody yes. on YouTube should be able to see it. Uh, it's kind of blending in with my Zoom background, but it's called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers by D Daniel Dreisbach, and it's published by Oxford University Press. I've heard of that press. I've heard of that. And uh, that's been around a while. This is a fantastic book. It's uh, It'll blow your mind. I've got the uh, hardcover. And let me give you a sense of the table of contents. And then I'm going to read a bio of uh, Dr. Dreisbach here. Um, we have the Bible and culture, the Bible and discourse, and you have such topics as the Bible and the lives of the founding fathers, the English Bible and American public culture, the Bible and political discourse of the American founding. And then you've got, uh, for example, a defense of liberty against tyrants, the Bible, the fight of resistance, and the American Revolution. It it, it just goes on and on. Um, and I'm I'm so excited to have Dr. Dreisbach here to lead us through the genesis of this. You like how I did that? The genesis of this book. Hopefully we'll make it to Revelation before all is said and done. <laughs> I just love talking to somebody that teaches pol politics and is biblically literate. I mean, what a what a country here. So let me give you a, a sense of who Dr. Dreisbach is. He's a professor in the School of Public Affairs at American University in Washington, D.C. He earned a Doctor of Philosophy degree from Oxford University, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar. And he also has a Juris Doctor degree from the University of Virginia. His research interests include the intersection of religion, politics, and law in American public life. He has authored or edited 10 books, including Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, this, this wonderful book, Great Christian Jurists of, in uh, American History by uh, Cambridge University Press. Thomas Jefferson and the Wall of Separation Between Church and State, NYU Press, 2002. He has published numerous book chapters, reviews, and articles in scholarly journals, including the American Journal of Legal History, Constitutional Commentary, Journal of Church and State, Politics and Religion, and William and Mary Quarterly. Professor Dreisbach is a past recipient of American University's highest faculty award, Scholar slash Teacher of the Year. Wow, that's a that's a pretty high honor. So, um, 
Dr. Dreisbach, as I was reading that little short bio of yours, I was having flashbacks of several uh, articles that I read over a decade ago in William and Mary quarterly and um, in um, what was the other one? Uh, the, the American Journal of Legal History. I remember reading something in there from you and your book on Thomas Jefferson, the wall of separation between church and state, which I used for my papers when I was going through my PhD course, <laughs> I, I was writing um, back in 2011. This would have been a class on American political institutions. And I picked the first amendment and I was reading uh, all about the separation of church and state. So I'm really excited because I feel like I'm kind of coming full circle and uh, this is my first time meeting you and I've known your name for a long time. And uh, I had a professor named Michael Yulman, who was uh, a mentor of mine for about a decade. And he taught my first amendment course. My first, I took a course on the first amendment religion clauses at, in 2011 at Claremont. And I, was recently going through my archives and I came across notes that I took where I wrote your name down and he said, you were the man on Thomas Jefferson and separation of church and state and that you have to know this guy Dreisbach. So I, ever since then, I was looking for your stuff and, and journal articles. And I feel like I've been talking for like the whole time now and we need to talk, we need to hear from you. So but all that to say, I'm so excited. And I, I want this to be our Thanksgiving episode. So, by the way, I just, uh, I, I, I've got to say that was very kind of Mike Ullman. He was a, a longtime friend of mine and, and what a kind and generous man he was. So yes, he was. Uh, that makes me feel very good to, to hear that, uh, that uh, bit of, uh, uh, of a story from, from him. I miss him dearly. And uh, I'm sure we all do. Uh, that was a wonderful course and he actually changed my life. Uh, he changed my professional direction. I was teaching philosophy for, t for 15 years and I was doing a PhD part-time in, uh, in <clears throat> basically constitutional law at Claremont under his direction. And, uh, you know, he, he, I had a conversation with him in 2007 where I was just kind of batting around going to law school. And um, I had my master's in philosophy. I was teaching philosophy at Pepperdine at the time and uh, taught at Pepperdine for over a decade. And um, he talked me out of going to law school one day. I didn't even know who he was. I was walking around Claremont kind of aimlessly. And uh I found myself in the politics spaces up there in the PhD program area. It was a Friday afternoon and uh, there was nobody around except for this tall um, gentleman, older gentleman. I did, had no idea who he was. Turned out it was Michael Yulman. And um, we ended up talking for an hour. He didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was. Uh, he seemed very knowledgeable. And he recommended that I read this book that I'm holding the microphone up called A Nation Under Lawyers. Let's see if you can get the, if you can see it, but it's written by uh, Marianne Glendon. Yes, yes, I know <laughs> that book. 
And uh, I have this book because he recommended to me and he said, you want to, before you go to law school, read that book. Don't, don't do any, don't do, don't do any application, read that book. And um, so I took his advice and then the best I could, I read it and I, I didn't really understand everything in it, but I tried and turned out uh, those kind of conversations with Michael Yulman uh, changed my life. And he said, I think what you want is you want to be a scholar. You want to study the law from a from an academic perspective, and you can do that. But the, he was he was a University of Virginia grad as well. Did you know that? Yes, yes. He w- he went well, to UVA Law School, and he got the LLB. That was back when they did the LLB. And he was telling me about the JD versus the LLB, and he and he was <laughs> he didn't have very nice things to say about the JD. He said it's a it's a technician degree. It's like you know. It, come out knowing how to do like gun repair and refrigeration technology you know he he was nicer than that but he was he was he was upset that the 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 foundation the philosophical and historical foundations were kind of lost on a lot of michael michael had a lot to draw on in giving you that advice he was a gentleman and a scholar but as you well know he also had a life as a practitioner uh, in, engaged in government. And so he could draw on a lot of different experiences in, in giving you what I think was pretty good advice. Hmm. Well, I know you went to law school, so tell us about your journey before we get into your book. How did you go to law school first or did you do the scholarly stuff first? Well, I, I, I did the, uh, academic, uh, the, the more academic, uh, course first. Okay. And uh, I had been thinking about going to law school, coming out of college, and then uh, an opportunity to pursue the, the graduate degree uh, came up, and I, I grabbed it. And, uh, and, and as I was nearing the end of that, I, I sort of went back to, to the path that I had been on uh, there at the end of, uh, at the end of, uh, of my college experience. And I don't regret it. Uh, you know, I probably would have gotten as much as I wanted out of law school simply to have done the first year, but I don't regret doing the whole degree. Um, I practiced law for a, for a few years, uh, but you know, in my teaching, in my in my writing and scholarship, I, I do quite frequently draw on uh, that legal training. So it's it's served me well in that respect. I don't think I would have ever wanted to be a sort of a workaday lawyer. Um, but I knew that going into law school. And Michael, by the way, was absolutely right. Uh, you know, it is a it's a, a practitioner's uh, degree. Uh, it's it's teaching you a trade. And I don't mean that in any condescending or belittling way. Um, you know, there are many uh, of us that 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 are looking for uh, training in a trade. And that's what law school does. And so it's my observation and experience that many people who come out of a serious academic background are sometimes frustrated by law school because it it oftentimes doesn't provide the depth of of, of sort of scholarly inquiry that, that they were expecting to find. Uh, and again, it's because it's, it's training you and teaching you for a profession. I've lost your sound, uh, Lucas. Sorry. I, <laughs> I sometimes put my uh, sound on mute so I can uh, make sure I don't interrupt you at all. 
Um, I was asking, did you know that you wanted to be a professor when you went to Oxford? It was certainly something I had thought a little bit about, uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I went off to graduate school not knowing exactly where it would lead. Um, and that's sort of how I've lived my life. I've, I, I've never had the big five-year, 10-year, 15-year plan. Uh, I've, I've simply sort of uh, pursued opportunities and open doors and, and, uh, uh, and, and God has uh, been very good and gracious to me and, and lead me on the path that I have, in fact, uh, followed. So the short answer is I, I, I wasn't sure and, and didn't necessarily expect to end up in, in academics, but uh, it certainly was one of the possibilities that I had considered. You just mentioned God. So you believe in God? I do. Do you have a faith tradition that you want to mention? Well, I would say that um, I was I was raised in a in a, a God fearing home, a, a Christian home. Um, uh, my parents, uh, I would say, uh, at least towards the end of their lives, uh, worshipped in a Baptist uh, church. But in my own uh, late teen years and into my uh, adulthood, I. I've gravitated more towards the the reformed theological tradition, and for most of my adult life, have uh, worshipped in uh, uh, Presbyterian churches. Okay, wow, that's quite a journey. So, did you uh, grow up reading the Bible? Certainly, uh, I uh, uh, both my parents uh, were were um, avid readers of the Bible. Uh, just sort of an interesting side story. Um, my father, who uh, was a read a lot, uh, he had a habit of writing uh, at the end of a book that he owned the date that he finished reading it, uh, and uh, so there was that little record. And when he died, I was looking at some of the Bibles that he had uh, there in in his study, and it was interesting. You could see that the dates every year or two he would uh, finish reading the Bible all the way through, and he would put the date in. Um, but the longer he lived, uh, the later in life, the shorter the time period between each of those dates. Oh. And towards the very end of his life, I, I would guess he was reading through the Bible completely every two or three months. Uh, wow. So he was a, wow. an avid reader. And it, it was fascinating to have that record of his own uh, encounters, if you will, uh, with the Bible. Yeah. I'm trying to place your accent and I can't place it. Uh, where did you grow up? <laughs> well, that's a that's a hard question. Uh, okay. I've lived a lot of different places. Um, um, my my parents were for from the Ohio River Valley, uh, although uh, I have lived uh, all around the world and uh, hmm. and uh, went wow. to college in South Carolina, and oh, uh, yeah. so I've got a, a a bit of a of a mashup of uh, accents, I suspect. Yeah, where did you go in South Carolina? I went to the University of South Carolina. Oh, okay. at least that's where I finished up. Yeah. Cool. It's a beautiful state. That's a wonderful background. Um, did you, did your, was your father in the oil industry or was he in the military or I guess it would be your mother possibly too. I should ask. <laughs> 
Well, my or father missionaries, was, I guess. <laughs> yes, my father was a medical doctor, and my mom oh. was a registered nurse. Uh, wow. He was uh, one of the world's leading authorities on the disease of leprosy, and uh, wow. he, he devoted his life to medical missions. And I was actually born on a mission leprosarium in West Africa, uh, but wow. uh, he traveled all over the world uh, as part of that calling and. And I had the great privilege of often accompanying him and uh, living in, in far-flung corners of the world. Wow. I don't know anything about leprosy just beyond the word in the Bible, but and that's the only reason I know about it. But So what does it look like when you see someone with leprosy? Can you see it on them? You can sometimes. Uh, I, I would not profess to be an expert in any way myself. Um, my understanding, it does sort of uh, affect the nerves and things like that. And so oftentimes there's an appearance that the disease is gnawing away at things like your fingers and extremities, um, because like diabetics at late stages, oftentimes they lose the feeling in their fingers and legs and, and whatnot. And, and it, it sort of uh, the nicks and cuts and things sort of seem to, to sort of eat it your way at your disease. So um, wow. it's usually a, a fairly advanced stage of the disease before you begin to notice it on, on mm. someone. Uh, but certainly, uh, you do see people that, uh, it's, it's just very apparent, uh, that they're suffering, uh, from this illness. It is a communicable disease. Mm -hmm. Um, my, my father used to say, uh, that it, it was communicable, but it's among the least communicable of the communicable diseases. So it requires a lot of extended, skin-to-skin uh, -skin contact okay. to, to contract the disease. And so you, you often see the problem, even to this day, in cultures where, where families, for example, live in very closed quarters um, and sleep yeah. side by side, skin-to-skin. Right. Uh, -skin. Um, so um, that, that's sort of where you find it uh, today. Um, and uh, mm. it, it is, it's still a disease, although certainly... Uh, great strides have, have, have taken place in the last century in, in treating it. So this would be a, a disease that would be, uh, would have social consequences for the person having it. It would be, maybe they would feel shameful and, and kind of exiled socially. That is absolutely correct. And of course, you get that idea, that same picture from the from the scriptures as well. You remember yeah. the lepers who were sent outside the city gates. Right, right. And so right. that's a very uh, common experience. Yeah. Um, I was actually, as I said earlier, I was born on a leprosarium and the village where the leprosarium uh, 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 was located in the local language, the name of the village was placed to throw away shame whoa uh, in the local language and wow. i think that captures exactly what you're you're mentioning here it, the hope of course of coming to this leprosarium is that you sort of arrest the disease and you're now in a position to throw away whatever shame society might have cast upon you for having this disease wow wow so with that background and you were reading the gospels and you had a pretty profound sense of what that was when you were reading it. That's right. Yes. It, it was, uh, uh, the reading of the Bible was, was, was part of my life, uh, part of my yeah. daily experience. Uh, our family would, uh, at the end of each day, uh, would, uh, 
sit around a, a circle, so to speak, in the in the family home, and there would be some reading of scripture, and of course there would be opportunities for that throughout the course of the day as well. So your book, reading the Bible with the founding fathers, uh, we get the sense that here that you were pretty well prepared for um, being able to discern biblical quotations when you're reading primary documents in that era. And I think that that's what impressed me the most about your book is I was thinking about what it takes because this folks, this is a, I think I would say it's, I hope I don't make you feel uncomfortable, but I think it's a masterpiece. This is a masterpiece here because the amount of work that goes into this is enormous. It's absolutely enormous. The founding generation left such a rich record. And you talk about that a bit. I mean, it's not perfect by any means. And you talk about that, some of the issues there with the records. Um, but um, some of the records have not been preserved. Some of them were purposely destroyed. Um, but we do have quite a bit. And I guess what I'm getting at is when you, when you put that, when you put that together with the record of the Bible, and here's the founder's Bible that I have. Um, this is a, a version. Um, it's in the NASB, I think, um, published by Shiloh Road Publishing, I guess. I know the, the editor of this is, his name is um, Brad Cummings. I know him. He's been on the podcast and we talked about this, but I have my Schofield uh king james here as well and this is the bible that i grew up with i grew up on the king james version of the bible and so <laughs> um th look at how thick this is and it's yes. double columned and it's a lot it's a, it, it's and then you have two thousand <laughs> years of heritage there and it, 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 so I think that anybody that is starting this task, not having started from childhood is way behind. <laughs> so well, Let me, let me just say I, a thing I'm here. here. Let, let me make a couple observations. Uh, I, I think it would have been very hard for me to have written the book that I did without having the childhood that I had and that early exposure to the Bible. Yeah. And I, I think like, uh, most uh, fairly conservative Christian families uh, of the mid-20th century, they would have read the King James Bible. Yes, there were a few other uh, translations around, um, you know, before that, but, uh, you know, the King James was the dominant translation of the Bible. Yeah. So I grew up with an awareness of that particular translation, and as you well know, Lucas, there's a kind of rhythm, a cadence yes. to the language of the King James Bible. Yeah. And I'll tell you how that helped me working on this book. I would mm. be reading some uh, political document from the American founding, and I would hear a kind of rhythm or cadence in the language that would tip me off that 
this was either language from the King James Bible or or someone imitating the language mm. of the King James mm -hmm. Bible. Uh -huh. And I yep. mention that because there are a number of rather eminent historians who have said things like this. The founding fathers uh, did not know the Bible. <laughs> and I'm always taken aback by that because it's so obviously false. And I say, well, right. why? how is it that that a, a good historian can make such yeah. an obviously false statement? Right. And I think there are a number of possible explanations, but one of them is this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. is that they're biblically illiterate, or right. to be even That's more right. precise, they're King James Bible illiterate. Mm. Their ear doesn't hear that very distinctive language of the King James Bible that would tip them off, because quite often American founders yeah. would quote the Bible without quotation marks yeah, or without right. a citation. But oh, yeah. what does that tell you? It tells you that they were writing for a profoundly biblically literate people. Americans of the late 18th yep. century didn't need quotation marks yep. and footnotes to know that this language that's being cited is the language of the Bible. That's what we need today because we live in this profoundly illiterate culture, yes, at least biblically absolutely. illiterate culture. And by the way, founder after founder knew the Bible. Their, their, their references to, to both famous and obscure passages of Scripture tells us that they knew the, knew the Bible intimately, and they could just weave the vernacular and the idioms of the Bible into their ordinary discourse, as well as into their more sort of significant writings. Uh, it was just a part of the language, and that's going to continue almost to the 20th century. Uh, consider, for example, uh, someone like Abraham Lincoln in the mid-19th century. This is a man yeah. who knew the Bible very, very well, and, and if, you, if you pick up any major speech of Abraham Lincoln, you will see how he just weaves the Bible and Bible-like language into his uh, manner of, of expression. Uh, sometimes he's quoting the Bible directly, as he does uh, a number of times in his second inaugural address. Other times he's simply making Bible-like references, as is the case in the Gettysburg Address. The Gettysburg Address right. is replete with echoes of the King James Bible. Can you uh, give an example the from words, right? Four yeah. score and seven years ago, he's using a mode of expression that we see, for example, in Psalms 90, 10, speaking of the number of years that man has on this earth, three score and 10. I mean, mm. in some ways it's an odd way of, of counting, but I yeah. think what he's doing is from the very opening lines of the Gettysburg Address, he's putting his audience into a biblical frame of mind. Mind. He's setting right. a mood. He is telling people there's something serious to be said here. And it continues. He goes from four score and seven years ago to what's the next phrase? Our fathers. This is right. the language of reference to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. It's the opening of the of the Lord's Prayer. But he doesn't stop there. He says, our fathers brought forth. Brought forth is the language we see twice in Genesis chapter 1, speaking of the creation oh, story. Yes, we see it all true. through the books of Moses. Mo Moses brought forth the children of Israel wow. uh, out of bondage in Egypt. It's the language of Matthew, speaking of Mary, who 
brought forth a Christ child. Wow, and, and again, I he's that. not quoting the Bible. He's not no, quoting the no, Bible no. directly, right. but he's putting his audience in a biblical frame of mind for this most solemn of occasions, the dedication of this of this battlefield there in Gettysburg, where people shed their lives so that the nation could have what? A new birth, another biblical phrase, right? Um, right. And and would live would now, live what's, for eternity. What's new birth from? Where's what's that from? The, oh, well, that's right. Yeah, it, it's sorry. the language of John <laughs> chapter three, right? Yes, that's it's, right. It's, it's, that's it's, right. It, it, it's man, I missed it's that. Jesus. I totally missed that. I, I uh, now, don't know why. I I can't believe I've missed that. Well, by new the way, he freedom. builds on that theme. If you if you read the Gettysburg Address, what is the theme? Um, it is it's the theme is the conception, birth life, death, and new birth of a nation. Now, what, what gives it power is that he says yeah, yeah. that the nation was conceived and, and, and was born in sin, the sin of slavery. And he's saying that these brave young men shed their blood on wow. the battlefield there in that's Gettysburg a, a to give thing. what? New life a new birth so that this new nation wow. shall not perish from the earth, right? This is this is sort of the profound themes wow. of the gospel. But what does that tell you, Lucas? It tells you that this was a speech given by a man who knew the Bible. No he kidding. He knew it well. He, he yes. had absorbed the, 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 the rhythms and the idioms of the King James Bible, and yeah. it just becomes part of his, of his speech, of his vernacular. Yeah. That's great. I, I, you know, I, that's so refreshing to hear. And it, it rings totally true. I've spent, you know, I'll, I'll you know, I, I'm going to give you a, a story. I'll give you two stories briefly. Why I'm, I think, uniquely receptive to this um, and excited about it. And I hope every, everybody else gets excited about it too. I, this is very exciting to me. Um, the uh, first master's degree I did was in biblical studies, and I later went on to get a PhD in, in politics and constitutional law. And so I, I came into the PhD program with, a, with six years of seminary and, um, and a background in the King James when I was a kid. And uh, my first master's thesis was on echo, it's called well, there's a there's a scholar named Richard Hayes. I think he's I think he might have died recently, but um, he's at Duke, and he wrote a book called Echoes of Scripture in the Letters of Paul. And he taught New Testament at Duke for a long time. Um, and uh, I read that book. It was uh, back in 1989, I believe it was that it came out, and I read it in seminary. And it was about how Paul used the Old Testament and and it wasn't just in quotations. Mm -hmm. So, and at, when a New Testament author uses the Old Testament, they often don't say what they're quoting. They don't say it at all. They just quote it. And sometimes they don't even quote it exactly. They have what they, what Richard Hayes called an echo or an illusion. I think he called it echoes. And he might've come up with that term echoes. Um, but I, I picked that up and I looked at Luke's, the gospel of Luke's use of Isaiah 
and Luke does quote Isaiah quite heavily, like uh, a lot of uh, New Testament documents do. He quotes it in the in the Gospel, and he quotes it in Acts. And there's some famous passages, like for example, when uh, Jesus reads the from the scroll in in the synagogue in Nazareth, and that's actually the earliest na- uh, synagogue service recording we have in history that that is the oldest documented reference to anything happening in any synagogue in history and it's in luke chapter 4. in luke chapter 3 he quotes uh, isaiah 40 talking about uh, john the baptist being a voice crying out in the wilderness and and so on and so forth like that but a lot of the what i argued was a lot of the uses of isaiah actually had nothing to do with a direct quotation the direct quotation might prompt the reader to recall the theme of Isaiah from back and and then a slight echo or an illusion would bring forth a host of Isianic kind of theme themes. That's what I was arguing. And um, so I had this uh, early interest in in the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And what I noticed was for the first century, the Jewish context uh, and the God-fearing context among the Greeks, where they would have been very familiar with the either the Septuagint or, in some cases, the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, they didn't need people to tell them what was being quoted. And so when I came to the study of politics, I noticed a lot of that was happening in, in the American scene as well, uh, where I'll, and, I, and here's my story. Here's my anecdote. I was in a religion and politics class at Claremont in 2011, and it was in the spring. And the professor was Richard Bushman, who was the Governor Morris Professor of History at Columbia University there, and he was a visiting professor at Claremont at the time. And he was a wonderful man, um, obviously very well uh, versed in religion and politics in America. I think he was Mormon, actually. That's right. That's right. And um, the TA ran the course and we had a, we read, uh, you know, the, the, the literature, I think it was the Genovese is on the, um, on Southern culture. And it was a lot of the, of the primary documents of the abolitionists. And, and we read some Lincoln and, and I thought it was a very shallow conversation. And I was the only I was one of two politics students in there. They were all PhD students in religion. And uh, this particular day, the the TA running the course said that, um, okay, so we're all in agreement that uh, the Bible's pro-slavery. And that was the popular thing to say, I guess. And I was, I, I, Daniel, I, I don't say anything in class. I, I didn't say anything, you know, typically I just took careful notes and I, I rarely made any comments. I just listened. That one, I could, I couldn't let it go. <laughs> I was like, I was like, okay, all right. Um, now let's go back. Let's go back and, and think this through a little bit and let's just take the second inaugural. And so I was, I was looking at Lincoln's second inaugural and his use and they had missed the biblical quotations in the second inaugural address. And since I had been raised on the King James, 
as soon as Lincoln said, whoa, unto, you know, unto the world because of offenses, for it must need be that offenses come, but woe unto them who, by whom the offense cometh. He, I didn't know he was quoting Matthew 18 at the time. I had to look that up, but I immediately knew he was quoting the King James. And that was my point because I was raised on the King James. And I had to look it up, but when I looked it up, I looked at the context. I looked at, uh, I think he was quoting verse seven. I looked at verse six. I looked at verse eight, because that's what they teach you in, in seminary. Look at the context. And he's talking about if, if uh, it, it's better to come into the kingdom of heaven, halt or maimed, than if your eyeball, you know, these body parts cause you to sin, pl you know, pluck them out, cut it off. And, and the verse before was, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and drown in the depth of the sea. And that's a death penalty. And this is Jesus. And Lincoln is quoting Jesus here in the, in the New Testament. And he clearly says that if one of those offenses is slavery, and he calls it a sin, I mean, the clear impression is that it should be cut off. Yeah, it should of course, be. It should be plucked building, out. He's also building on 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 the Old Testament text, if I remember correctly, and I'm sure you will yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, about the injustice of 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 benefiting off the sweat of another man's brow. Right. Yeah, is that an Old Testament quotation? And that's my recollection. I uh, I'd have to go back oh, and I look at that. He does. I know he does quote the Old Testament. He quotes the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether or something like that. I think that's the Psalms. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that makes sense to me. I mean, it's clearly stealing. Um, that would be stealing, I think. Yes. Um, and of course, there's the whole issue of kidnapping, which is in Exodus. I believe it's Exodus 21 right after the Ten Commandments. Um. Well, that's a that's a clear example where I, I think I first was made aware that you can't take it for granted that just because someone's a Ph.D. person that they really know what they're talking about on that thing. They might be missing something. Yes. And I mean, we all miss something. I mean, it's not, you know, but I, I think I, I was alerted at that moment to. Wow, there's something about the Bible that people really miss. And I think it's because of biblical illiteracy. And I, I and I noticed that's what I really appreciated about your book. Uh, I was reviewing it last night, and I haven't gotten all the way through all of it. But I was very interested early in the in the book. You talk about um, the Bible and culture. This this is this part right here is so rich, and you talk about how the Bible was used in literacy education. For pretty much every educated person, whether they believe the Bible or not, including Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin and, and folks like that, that we know didn't really believe everything in the Bible, to, but, but also for the majority that did believe the Bible, and it seemed like the majority certainly did, uh, majority of the founding fathers and the folks that were um, just kind of average people. I noticed you mentioned Richard Mather. I got to, I got to mention that okay. because I think every Mather 
well, my understanding is that he was the first Mather in the new world and that I go back to him somehow, but um, on my grandfather's side, at least. Um, Richard Mathers mentioned earlier, but where's this, where's this issue here? Um, I mean, it's so rich. There's so much, there's so much here, but. Well, let me just say this. Uh, when you begin to see the emergence of, of sort of a, a kind of deism in Europe in the, mm. in the pre preceding century, the late 17th century, uh, there was a vein of, of deism that, that viewed the Bible and viewed Jesus as a fraud, as an imposter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think you're going to see much of that vein of enlightenment or deistic thought in America in the 18th century, even among people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, as I think you rightly point out, they're not Orthodox Christians, but they right. view, even if they're unwilling to accept Jesus as the son of God, yeah. they recognize and describe him as the greatest moral teacher that ever lived. Yeah, that's right. And so it's a very different view that you find in the American founding era towards the Bible, towards Christianity. Again, there was this very common view in Europe that belittled the Bible, wanted to dismiss it as, as, as simply a, a kind of a book of, 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 you know, almost fraudulent type claims. And you're going to see that in America in the 19th century. Again, a kind of, of, of really cynical view of the Bible. But if you're looking at the American founding era, again, even among those founders who are unwilling to accept uh, the transcendent claims of the scripture, view it, view the Bible nonetheless as the good book, as a, as a book of profound value, uh, perhaps even a book essential to their experiment in Republican self-government. Right. I, 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 I tell in the book, about John Adams, who described the Bible as the most Republican yeah. book in the world. And I think that's a, it always captures my attention, that phrase. And by the way, he's not alone. John Dickinson, um, sometimes mm -hmm. called the penman of the revolution, used exactly that same phrase. Why do they call the Bible the most Republican book in the world? Here's the reason. They believe that for their experiment in self-government to succeed, people must be a virtuous people, a discipline controlled by an internal moral compass. That was essential for Republican government. And they thought the Bible was the perfect textbook for nurturing that kind of, of civic virtue, that kind of morality that, that they understood to be almost uh, essential for their yeah. experiment in, in Republican self-government. Hence it's, it's a Republican book as they, as they describe it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very interesting and subtle argument. And it, I keep going back to this, but it requires mastery of so much to me. I mean, so there's a, there's a couple different ways we could go about this. I mean, let me just give you an anecdote from class i'm teaching the american founding this semester and i've never taught the course before so it's a it's a handful for me um but i'm enjoying it and it's at azusa pacific university in los angeles county and i i don't normally uh mention current class anecdotes but 
you know, I, I think this is safe to mention that um, we had a brief discussion about Thanksgiving because we looked pretty carefully at religion and in, in the in the early constitutionalism, uh, First Amendment issues, and um, we took a look at uh, Phil Munoz's work on God and the Founders, and I had them read that. <laughs> so I tortured them. I was torturing them basically with these First Amendment issues, and um, well, some of the students weren't completely convinced that thanksgiving had anything to do with anything about religion so that's where we're at daniel and yes. and and i didn't know how to approach this i wanted to be gentle but i also wanted to be memorable and firm <laughs> because it's such a basic thing and so the the dialogue went something like this it was a, a socratic like dialogue i i said well what do you what do you think the the issue of Thanksgiving means being grateful. And they said it was, it was about being gr grateful. And I, I said, well, is this a conversation with yourself? I mean, how, what does it mean to be grateful? It seems like it always means that you have to have an object of your gratefulness. The, and usually it's a person, I think. And I think what they were missing is just how saturated the colonial world was and the early Republic was in Protestant Christianity. Let's just say it. Yeah. The North and the South. <clears throat> and now this is part of what requires mastery is the issue of slavery, I think, and the Bible. And uh, we'll get to that in a second, maybe, but. I have a, an idea I'd like to pitch at you, but, but just the, the issue of thank being thankful and, and of course it's thankful to God. I mean, that that's, it's so obvious, but there's well, other let just, things. Yeah, too. Let me just remind yeah, sure. you though, you know, there've been these studies done of, of, of textbooks used in elementary secondary schools. And, you know, these textbook writers are, are scared to death to mention religion or, yeah. or God and whatnot. And, and, and there had, you know, we, we're living with a generation or two of Americans who grew up where their exposure to American history has, has been sort of sanitized of any yeah. reference uh, to, to matters of faith and God. Right. Now, some of this I think is, is bad faith. Some of it, I think, is simply, you know, textbook, textbook writers being afraid, right? And school teachers uh, being afraid of, of, of encountering complaints or even lawsuits. And so yeah. we do live in an age of, of, you know, people who are woefully uninformed about, you know, this most important aspect of, of people's lives and, and the culture at the time. Uh, I think one of the most important yeah. points that I want to make in my book, uh, Lucas, if I might say so, is this, and that there is, it's not enough to simply note that a generation of Americas, the founding generation, quoted the Bible frequently in their political literature and their political discourse. I think we have to t go to the very next follow-up question, which is, how did they use the Bible? And I think this is a particularly important question to ask when you're talking about the use of the Bible in political discourse. Uh, you know, politicians, I think, 
sadly are drawn to the Bible because it is this authoritative source that so many Americans uh, value and take seriously. But I, I got to tell you, when you hear a politician quoting the Bible, you should pause for a moment and say, now, how are they using the Bible? Are they stripping a quote that they like from its context for some immediate political benefit or political gain? Or are they using the Bible in its proper context? Uh, are they using the Bible in a way that is consistent with the with the Bible itself, with how the Bible's used it? And and your example of debates over slavery is a perfect example because the truth is, uh, for for many centuries now, we have seen Americans who have used the Bible to both defend slavery as an institution, but also to attack it as yes. an institution. And so, again, my, my plea is there's many different ways in which one can use the Bible or any other authoritative source for that matter. And so when you hear something like the Bible being quoted in, in political discourse, you should always sort of back up and say, mm. how is it being used? Is it being used merely as, a, as an illusion? Uh, is it being used merely for its rhetorical effect? Is it being used in a biblical context? Um, right. These are the kinds of questions I think we should always follow up, a recognition of a public use of scripture in discourse. Yeah, that's good. That's that. that I so going back to the, the sanitation issue. Yeah. Is that because of the Supreme Court decisions in the 60s, you think? I think that has a lot to do with it. And so, I think so too. I think we sometimes see, not always, but I think sometimes we see people, uh, well-meaning people who are simply, you know, rewriting the history simply to avoid a controversial topic. Yes. Now, that's not, in my view, that's not a sufficient uh, reason right. to rewrite history. But I, I kind of understand the pressures that school teachers find themselves sometimes under. And so, you know, quite literally, there are these textbooks that, that have rewritten stories from the past where, where the pilgrims at that Thanksgiving say, thank God, and they've been rewritten in modern textbooks to say, thank goodness, right? <laughs> Changing the word God to goodness. Uh, wow. and, and that's, that's, that's a, a kind of a trivial example but an example of, I think, this effort to sort of simply sanitize the history to remove any allusions or references to faith, sure. religion, God, uh, and the like. Uh, and it has an effect over time. And, and it's not a, yeah, not a yeah. good effect. It's a, it leaves us with this distorted picture uh, of, yeah. of the past. Yeah. And as an educator, that bothers me. Because, well. yes, because, yeah, there's a culture that there's a sanitizing culture. It's not just with this topic, it's other topics as well. But just staying on this topic, um, I'll give you an example of what I did in my founding class. Um, I took uh, Donald Lutz's book, The Origins of American Constitutionalism, which I required. And I'm pretty sure that hardly anybody read the book. Um, but um, anyway. Well, if I teach the course again in the future, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make sure they read that book more carefully. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to really keep students accountable, I think, but nowadays there's a lot of great inflation, Daniel, I think. And, um, but, but anyway, I, I showed them the Mayflower compact 
and there's a copy of it there in Donald Lutz's book. And um, the way the Mayflower Compact ends is with uh, the date. And there's two ways it gives the date. It gives the date by virtue. Well, first of all, it starts with in the name of God, amen. <laughs> and, then, and then it ends with in the year of uh, James, the you know, I can't remember who was king exactly, but it was it was a king. And however long he's, you know, they, they've conquered Ireland and stuff like that. And then the second date was and in the year of our Lord. No, no, sorry. It was Anno Domini, um, Anno Domini 1620 or something like that. So I, I just had them look at the date. And then I took Article 7 or the, yeah, I guess it's Article 7 in the Constitution. And right below that, I'm using Kessler's edition, uh, which is the Signet Classic edition. Um, and Kessler was my Federalist uh professor charles kessler he's got a great edition of the federalist papers and it's got the constitution and i shine that up there and right after article seven and it looks like it's even part of article seven yes uh, i think is it does quote it yeah it's a signing and and it, subscription right up, clause yeah 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 it's the it's we're right right below it. george washington signs it as the president of the of the constitutional convention not not of the united states yet but right above that is in the year of our Lord, 1787. And I, I just asked them to look and see if there's anything different. They all noticed that the king was not there referenced in the Constitution. King of England is no longer referenced anywhere in the date. But I said, well, hold on a second. There still is a king referenced. Yes. And that would be the king of king and lord of lords, the lord the lord is referenced right there and that's how they did the date and that's one of the things that gets sanitized it's like you know i've I've noticed that people don't even like referring to the date like that anymore and my students didn't even know what anno domini was <laughs> and so i i said well that's where we get ad and that's that just means the year of our lord in latin and um now there is earlier in the mayflower compact a reference to the king and it's in, in the portion of the Mayflower Compact that I would describe as the preamble, setting out the basic uh, uh, goals and objectives. You remember, but it's really interesting, the ordering. It mentions three things that this mission is all about. One, the glory of God. Second, the advancement of the Christian faith. And then in third wow. place and yeah. last place is the king, right? Yeah. Um, but it tells you something about the priorities of that little band of, of pilgrims. Right. Um, right. You know, you might imagine, given that they're fleeing England, that they might have skipped the king at all. But it tells you that they're a law-abiding people, that they even acknowledge uh, the king there early on in the Mayflower. But I'm always drawn to the order, right? The glory of God, the advancement of the Christian faith, and then uh, for, for king and country, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's... And so let me let me reference a specific thing that in your in your book I, I i got a couple things that really are here's just some examples so people can get a handle on the kind of 
interesting material on page 46. This is a chapter called The English Bible and the American Public Culture. Um, you reference uh, several Judeo-Christian concepts that are kind of echoed in American constitutionalism. Um, take, for example, the separation of powers and checks and balances. And man, that is one of my favorite themes because my dissertation was on the separation of powers. And I love to point this out to my students. I'm also teaching a, a class on Congress. It's the first time I'm teaching that course too. And it's a little overwhelming, but I spent a lot of time on the design of Congress. And uh, one of the things I was trying to get through to my students was it's a little odd the way it's set up. I mean, you have the Senate, you have the House of Representatives, and you have staggered elections, and you have different terms of office. You have bicameralism, which is just weird. I mean, it, it is a little odd. And then you have enumerated powers. You have legislative powers here and granted. And a lot of folks, this this basic stuff, they get this they, they miss this basic stuff, I think. I mean, in fact, I, I pulled up a congressional research report, a CRS report on intro to the legislative process, and it's still up there. You can take a look at it. And they they misquote Article 1. They take out here and granted. They say, it said, this is a publication of Congress. It says, Congress has all legislative powers. That's what it says. And I so as actually one of the quizzes I had was, what is wrong with that statement <laughs> given the founding? And uh, so I had them, it was really gratifying for them to say, the president has the veto power and that's a little bit of legislative power right there. And so, and they also have the, the powers here and granted. But the, the point I was trying to get through to them is that they had a biblical view of human nature, which um, is kind of crusty in a sense that it's not, it's not Pollyanna-ish. It's 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 not pie in the sky. It's it's a skeptical view, and very... they're very concerned about a group of people making laws, and just the majority vote is what whatever happens. Think and... of Federalist thirty-seven. James Madison speaks of the infirmities yeah. and the depravities of the human character. That he's Ooh. not mincing words there, right? Wow. That's a yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a pretty dim view, and and that's yeah. you see that throughout the Federalist Papers. You also hear that argument being made in the chambers there of the Constitutional Convention in the summer of 1787. And I I, I don't think that you know when, when I pick up and read the Constitution, I'm struck as I think you are directing us to their obsession with checks and balances, with yeah. separation of powers. Where does that come from? It comes from this fundamental distrust of the human character. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and you gave an example. They don't simply give us uh, a separation of powers. They give us separation of powers within separation of powers, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what the bicameral legislature is. We're gonna yeah. not only have the legislature separated from the judicial and the executive, but we're going to separate the powers yeah. of the legislature. Yeah. What a distrust of human yeah. character. Yeah. And, and again, where does this come from? I think it's a, I call this a biblical anthropology. 
It's a view right. of humankind that yeah. comes from scripture. What does yeah. Jeremiah say? We're wicked, desperately wicked, right? Yeah. John Adams quotes that right. very verse from Jeremiah to speak yeah. of, of the nature of the human character. Yeah, and and, and I I you see that and 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 that comes through. So you'd make it would make you wonder why they weren't just anarchists that but at the same time they want government and they they have this hope that that, that so they they have this other part of the biblical view of human nature which is that we're all created in the image of God and we all bear the divine image we all have a rational nature in some sense uh where we are created in the image of the logos yeah, and we can we can we can reason together and there can be an attempt at ordered liberty. Yes. And it, but it takes time. And and so a lot of folks, they'll it's very popular here. People say that Washington, D.C. is so dysfunctional. And usually it's because the, the branches are fighting with each other of some kind. There's a grinding halt or something. And and I pointed out the possibility that that might be functional. Because yeah. if you have a biblical view of human nature, the last thing you want is for the passions of the majority in that moment. Yeah. Well, to here's, just run here's how over I, the minority. Yeah. Here's how I sometimes look at it. And, and I, I, here's a good place to turn. I think it's the closing paragraph or paragraphs of, I think it's Federalist 55. And James Madison points this out, which I think is what you're pointing out. He, he says, yes, we are fallen creatures. We are a fallen people. But yeah. he also points out that there are other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence, he says. There's sufficient esteem and confidence in this human nature that we know on the one hand is, is fallen, but yet there's something redeemable here that, that would justify faith in the idea of self-government. There's sufficient confidence uh, to believe that we can govern ourselves. And so the way yeah. I sometimes look at it, Lucas, is I think there was a, a plan A and a plan B, right? The plan A was to nurture those kinds of civic virtues that would hopefully guide us in a, in a disciplined, in a disciplined fashion. But because we are, after all, fallen creatures, there has to be a plan B, which is to create the structures of government that will check and restrain us when we get off the rails, when we go yeah. off the rails. So we want yeah. to start with that civic virtue, but recognizing that in our fallen state, that will not always be sufficient. Right. So we lean on the plan B, which are these structural uh, limitations yeah. on us as humans so that we don't uh, overreach and abuse those powers that we might be entrusted with. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Let me continue on page 46 at the bottom. Pa separation of powers, checks and balances, uh, you say, has struck many commentators as an acknowledgement of original sin and of the necessity to check the powers exercised by fallen humans. And you've got a footnote there. The Constitution included provisions that were almost certainly derived from the Bible and Christian doctrine. The Constitution's oath requirement. Now, this is very subtle, and I love these subtle things because it it shows that you're in touch with, like, like Thanksgiving, for example. It's about thinking, you know, God. 
it's kind of basic. It's so basic. It's hard to believe you have to point it out, but the, the oath requirement. And I, I point out to my, my students that I think are a little bit skeptical of God, God's existence always makes me sad, but I understand it because I, I studied philosophy and I, and I get it. I, I get it. You, you might go through a period where you're, you're struggling with that, but the oath requirement, um, that that's a very subtle thing that the oaths are required in the, in the constitution. And what is an oath? What is that? And that's one of those things that gets sanitized. And you see the sanitization throughout recent history, I think. The oath requirement found in Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6. It's also in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 8. And it's actually spelled out there. The presidential oath is, is exactly spelled out. Article 6, Clause 3, and Amendment 4 entailed a profoundly religious act. Um, moral philosophers and constitutional architects in the founding era and well into the 19th century typically defined an oath as a solemn appeal to a supreme being for the truth of what was being said by a person who believes in the existence of a supreme being and in a future state of rewards and punishments according to that form which will bind his conscious his conscience most well, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, why would you have an oath? What's the point of it? I've been a jury member in a murder trial. I saw the process that takes place when people get sworn in. And I've, I've given testimony and I've had to be sworn in before. And it is, it's like, well, what are we doing here? Is this just symbolic here? Or, well, what's it symbolic of? If It, it does seem kind of like a vestigial organ as our culture becomes flirts with secularization and in some cases just tries to be secular, but then it's like, well, why do you have this at all? I mean, if you're, um, if you don't think that there's any problem with lying, well, why would you, why would the oath be anything special? There's nothing magical about it. And so there's a biblical issue of lying. I mean, it goes back to the 10 commandments. Do not bear false witness. It's a very serious thing. And let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's also in the Bible as well. And that's a very serious thing. In other words, mean what you say and say what you mean. And then you have um, the provision in Article 1, Section 7, Clause 2, the provision accepting Sundays from which the president must veto a bill. And you say it's an implicit recognition of the Christian Sabbath. This is page 47 at the top. And this is so subtle, but it's so obvious, too, because the post office is closed on Sunday. I've taught at Cal State, both in Orange County and in L.A. Both times, the place is a, a desert on Sunday. Those are state schools. Um, you know. In Braunfield versus Brown, I believe it is. Uh, it, it, there's a Jewish. I might. Yes. Do I have that case right? Yes, 1961. Right. Early 1960s Supreme Court opinion. Yeah. 1961, I think. Yeah, and it's it's a Jewish man. I think it's in Pennsylvania, taking exception to the Sunday closing laws, mandating that he close his shop on Sundays. 
because he was selling non-essential goods or whatever. Um, it's always creepy to me when people use the term non-essential <laughs> goods, but, but, you know, the, here was the majority of the community saying we want businesses closed on Sunday for the Sabbath. And um, for him, his Sabbath was on Saturday. And so that was a loss to him of an entire business day in the work, which put him at a competitive disadvantage to all of the Christian majority that, uh, you know, didn't have to close their, their uh, work uh, for business on one of their business days. And so when I have my Jewish students in Los Angeles, they typically get this right away. They, they can clearly see this is a Christian thing because otherwise, why would you close it on Sunday? I mean, that's obvious. It's a Protestant thing. Not all Protestants, because there's a Seventh-day Adventist thing that comes up in Sherbert. I think it's the Sherbert case. The, Sherbert, it's the, uh, the free exercise, Sherbert v. Verner. That, that's yeah. 1963, if I remember that's, correctly. Yeah, that yeah. sounds right. Yeah. And, and the, the, at issue in that case was there was a Seventh-day Adventist who uh, took Sabbath on, on Saturday. Um, and uh, she was offered work, I believe, for her for her position at the time. And she, she turned it down on because Saturday. it required her to work on the Saturday. That's right. Saturday. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the way the government got involved in that case is she applied for unemployment benefits, which is a government program. And they denied her because work was available. And then she said, well, no, hold on a second. <laughs> it's not available on the Sabbath. Shouldn't be available on the Sabbath. And that's a discrimination against me based on my religion. Well, anyway, I think she won that case. <laughs> and, right. and so for her, she would very easily see this is a clearly religious thing. But I think in the sanitization that's that's happened over time, you know, we don't call it Christmas break anymore. It used to be called Christmas break on the campuses. Uh, we call it winter break. But, <laughs> you know, it's like if you look at the actual list of holidays that Cal State closes for christmas is still on there it's a it's an official religious holiday I, i'm just yeah. waiting by the way lucas for them to figure out the word holiday has the word holy in it yeah and we might have to censor that word too yeah the same well the reason i get bothered by it is because from an education point of view from an educator point of view i mean what are we doing we're trying to aren't we trying to impart what's actually the case i mean we're we're trying to get people in touch with history right i mean what was america really like why is it the way it is and whether you agree with it or not is really a secondary issue it's but you have to get clear about what what's going on here and this is clearly evidence these are just evidences of of the the influence the profound influence of the Bible on, on Protestant culture on, on America. Then you have, um, well, there's more on the Sabbath there on page 47 at the top. Here's another example on page 47. A, ma a maxim of canon law that no man ought to be punished twice for the same offense. Now, this was new to me. I hadn't thought about this, I, I have to admit. And I had to think about this. 
a maxim of canon law that no man ought to be punished twice for the same offense that has been attributed to a fourth century commentary by St. Jerome on Nahum 1.9. I never know how to say Nahum. Is it Nahum or Nahum? I, probably the Hebrew pronunciation is Nahum. But. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. That's the quotation. From these origins, the principle forbidding a defendant from being tried twice for the same offense entered into canon law and English customary law and was transferred to American colonial law and early state declaration of rights before it was ultimately enshrined in the Fifth Amendment. That that blew me away. And that I had to really think about the you know, issue of of justice and it seems like that makes a lot of sense to me. The way God operates in the Bible is he doesn't punish you twice for, for something, the same thing. Um, and same with forgiveness. If like you're forgiven, you're forgiven, right? <laughs> it's not like you have to, I, I might be reading too much into it, but how did you, how did that come on your radar? The issue of double jeopardy? Well, first of all, let me just say, uh, there, there's a, a very long list of these type of constitutional provisions, maybe a dozen or two, okay. that one can make a very strong argument, uh, have a biblical origin. Now, I want to be very clear here. These are not examples where I say, this is what I see in the Bible. Uh, rather, what I'm, I'm giving you are examples that that the greatest minds, great legal jurists throughout history have said, these are basic principles of our legal system that are derived from the Bible. So uh, there's a history behind it. Um, and, and, and legal scholars uh, over the millennia have literally pointed out this connection between St. Jerome, Nahum 1-9, and our own uh, prohibition in double jeopardy. The Supreme Court of the United States has acknowledged this lineage of ideas from Nahum 1-9 up through our own Fifth Amendment wow. with its double jeopardy. And again, the list goes on. Let me give you a couple others. Uh, for example, in Article 1, Section 8, uh, Congress is given the authority to regulate standard weights and measures there are many verses in scriptures that speak of the importance of standard weights and measures. Take, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 13 through 15, talks about the importance of having standard weights and measures. In Article 3, Section 3, uh, where it talks about the, the powers of, of, uh, of uh, conviction for treason, it says that uh, uh, the testimony of of at least two witnesses is required. Another biblical principle, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, says, at the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. And again, common law historians have long recognized that this requirement of two or three witnesses comes straight out of a, a biblical uh, requirement. Mm. Let me give you one more. And again, this could be a long list, but let me give you one more. That is the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment that we find in the Eighth Amendment. You might recall in Scripture uh, this, this uh, 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 emphasis that says, uh, you shall not give uh, uh, someone worthy of punishment more than 40 stripes 
40 stripes, uh, a kind of implicit recognition that there must be a limitation on punishment. The punishment must fit the crime. We see this as well in this, in what's sometimes called the lex talionis, this idea of, yeah. of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is about putting limits on how far we can punish someone. It's a rejection hmm. of cruel and unusual punishment. So there are a number of these constitutional principles that, that if we look at the broad sweep of history, the last two millennia, we, we see the, the, the if not uh, the direct influence, at least the echoes of biblical principles at play in Western legal tradition. Wow. Yeah, it's very subtle. I think maybe it would be easy to miss something like that because um, there might be a misunderstanding of the original source material, like the Bible on so, some things. When you read the Bible, it sounds so foreign because it seems harsh, seems really harsh. Um, and it's, it's hard to maybe get a sense of, of what's actually going on there in the context. And I think actually references to slavery in the Bible fit this kind of bill. And it's hard to know what's going on there. I mean, take, for example, Exodus. Let's just take Exodus. The, the broad theme of Exodus is the, the lineage of Abraham uh, the, through the 12 sons of, uh, of Jacob are there and Joseph. Joseph's one of those sons. Picking up from where Genesis is, they're living in, in Egypt, and they're enslaved. And they've been there for 400 years, and there's now like an eth ethnicity, I guess. That seems to be what the, the message is. And God hears the prayers. This is a very famous scene from Moses in the burning bush in chapter 3, where, where God says, I've heard the pleas of, of those oppressed by their slave masters, and he's going to free them. And he wants Moses to, to play a key role in this. And so the story goes on. And, and then there's the 10 plagues, and there's this really dramatic uh, you know, encounter with one of the most powerful men in, in the history of the world, and certainly probably at that time, Pharaoh. And with a result that I think according to the text, something like 1 million or more people leave and go on a journey to found a, a new nation. And it's such a dramatic story, but it's, it's really sourced in ending slavery. <laughs> and God yes. clearly says he has a concern for ending slavery, but then it says something like uh, there's some, Early in Exodus, Exodus has 40 chapters, and I think it's in 12 or something like that. It's it's in the section on the Passover. Maybe it's 13. I can't remember, but but it's it's there's this section on instructions for doing the Passover and who can take part. And there's a little bit of a section on foreigners and whether they can take part. And I think there's a section on if you have purchased somebody, I might be misremembering exactly, but there's something about purchasing someone in there. So there's a very subtle reference, and it seems like some of these folks would be owned 
So it's a little bit confusing. <laughs> and um, so my understanding is that there's such a thing as indentured servitude, and that might be different than what we understand as slavery in the American context based on kidnapping, which was really prohibited. And you see the prohibition and, you know, even, you know, um, the Take good the Elizabethan term for this was man stealing. Man stealing. Okay. We got an Elizabethan term. Wow. And we see this being used by the Puritans, for example, in some of their early codes. So is that a legitimate distinction that I'm making between? I, well, I think so. I mean, okay. look, now I'm going to step outside my reading of American history and offer you a little bit about my own view. And that is. Look, uh, clearly the Bible understands that there is this institution in a fallen world, and that's the key phrase there, uh, uh, of something like slavery or yeah. involuntary servitude. But the mere, uh, the mere fact of its existence is not necessarily a nod of approval or acceptance of it. It's a recognition that we have these inferior arrangements in the fallen world in which we live. And I think, as you rightly point out, uh, the, the, the great climax of the book of Exodus um, is, this, is this Exodus narrative. Um, I, I've read somewhere, and I, I, I can't vouch for its accuracy, but there's no passage in Scripture that's more frequently alluded to within the Bible itself than the Exodus narrative. Hmm. Why is it so, so, uh, why are we so drawn to it? It's a story about liberty and liberation. Yeah. That's the theme yeah. that's at play here. And, and that's why we're drawn time and again back to this story, uh, not because they were in Egypt and slavery, but God delivered them. Uh, yeah. from a inferior place to a more superior standing, which is that as free men and women, as liberated people. Um, and so in that new world, in that new, in that new earth and new heavens, uh, we will be shed of, of those afflictions of a fallen world, which is a, a state in which some of us are, are beholden to others in some form of, of servitude. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we yearn for and what God desires for us is, is that moment of liberation. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And I'm going to add to that. It's an ordered liberty because yes. right there in Exodus are the Ten Commandments. And so the God who liberates is also the God that commands for our and good. If there's, yeah, right? if there's one good. axiom that is repeated over and over again in the in the literature of the founding is, Liberty is not license. Hmm. There's a distinction between liberty and licentiousness. And I think that's what you're getting at when you use a term like ordered liberty, or we might say liberty under law. That's right. True liberty is liberty that is, is constrained, uh, that is disciplined. Yeah. And I, I fear that we live in an age where we sometimes have lost that distinction between liberty and licentiousness. Yes. Uh, we can only imagine liberty if, if we can do whatever we want, do what's right in our own eyes. Mm. Uh, but I don't think that's a biblical conception of liberty, and it's certainly not a view of liberty that was held by the, the American founders. Whenever this idea that, that liberty is this personal autonomy it was it was it was referenced in the founding era as something to be rejected 
and yet it's become the more dominant view of liberty here in the 21st century. Wow. There's a lot there. The issue of ordered liberty. Can you give an example of where that pops up? Um, the, the, the theme of ordered liberty versus licentiousness or versus... You mean in scripture or in the literature of the American founding? Uh, both, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the founding, I guess. Yeah. Well, look, because uh, I'm sure I, it's in scripture. Be, I, yeah. I, I don't have my book in front of me. Uh, I, the next to the last uh, chapter in my book is okay. about the theme of liberty in the political rhetoric of the American founding. And uh, I will tell you this, that we would be overwhelmed with the number of citations and quotations from this literature of the founding that, that distinguishes between liberty and license. It is an idea that that the founding generation come back to over and over again. I think it's oh, chapter yeah. nine. You need to go back one more page. Okay. Uh, chapter nine, uh, so, stand fast in liberty. You... Of course, that comes from Galatians chapter five, verse one. Uh, the use, and notice about my title there, the use and misuse of biblical symbols and rhetoric of liberty in the American founding. And I, I think the American founders did use and misuse the Bible oh, yes. to articulate their vision of political liberty. Uh, yeah. They quoted over and over again, Galatians 5.1, again, stand fast therewith, uh, therefore in the liberty wherein Christ hath made us free. They often use that uh, to promote an idea of political liberty, but in my own view, I think that's a misuse of that text, because I, I view that text as really about Christian liberty, uh, not right. political liberty. Okay. What's the difference between Christian liberty and, and political liberty? Well, People who have studied ideas of liberty in the American founding would say there are there are a number of very distinct and separate understandings of the word liberty. Uh, there's the idea of of political liberty, uh, individual liberty. Uh, there is a Christian liberty, uh, political liberty. They drew distinctions, very clean and subtle distinctions between different kinds of liberty. Uh, Christian liberty is that liberty that we enjoy in Christ that frees us uh, mm. from the constraints of the law. Um, and again, that's that's somewhat different than what I think the, the American founding was about, which was a kind of political liberty. Yeah. Uh, an idea that that we are allowed to exercise self-government. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. And the development of, of the slavery theme in the new Testament as well. Like I think second Peter, I believe says something like you're a slave to whatever has mastered you. Yeah. And, and, and then there's a theme, I think in the, the writings of, of St. Paul about uh, being a bond servant to Christ. In other yes. words, being a slave of Christ. I think it, that the Greek word is actually doulos, which is the word for slave in, yeah. in Greek. And, Let me tell you a little quick story uh, from yeah. the American founding that I think is quite a remarkable story. Of course, we all know what happened on July, July 4th, 1776. At least we know what happened in the morning of the uh, Continental Congress on that morning. In the afternoon, the delegates came back and one of their things that they accomplished on that day is they, they assigned a committee of three people to design a great seal for the United States, this new government, this new nation that they had just declared earlier that day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, appointed to this uh, committee was, was Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams. 
And they went away and spent a few weeks considering what would be an appropriate design for the great seal of, of the United States. And they came back in early August with a plan. And, and their, their idea was an image of Moses standing on the banks of the Red Sea with his arm extended and, and uh, liberating the children of Israel through the parted waters of the Red Sea. Wow. Now, here are, here are three characters, and, and they're not the, the crazy fundamentalist founders. Right. Right? Yeah. They were it's the not most John Witherspoon. Right. They're the ones most informed by an Enlightenment view. But nonetheless, think yeah. about this. They thought that was a fitting image to put on the great seal of the United States. Uh, wow. And by the way, they also proposed that there be a motto on that seal that was obedience uh, 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 resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. That may have been the great the great motto for this new nation. As it turned out, they the the, the uh, Congress uh, uh, adjourned before they could take action on it, and and this design uh, was never adopted. Uh, and uh, some years later, they came up with the design that we're all familiar with today. But think about that: John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson thinks this story of liberty and liberation that we find in the book of Exodus is a story of pertinence and relevance to these 13 now independent states coming together to form a new nation. Wow. So you said Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin, Franklin, and John Adams. John Adams. And John Adams sounds like a Christian to me when, when you're quoting him. I mean, he's well, he certainly saying. was a man who was born in the faith, and uh, okay. but I think there's evidence uh, that late in life he 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 leans more into a kind of Unitarianism. Okay, but certainly he comes out of a of a uh, out of a more Orthodox Christian culture, and it was very much a part of his his being, and he understood that culture very well, even if he 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 sort of moved away from a Trinitarian Christianity late in life. So they're swimming in this biblical uh, culture, even if they're not exactly like, you know, Billy Graham over here. That's right. Know? And By the way, I have a quote. I, I have a quote in the book. I can't tell you what page it's on, but it's a quote from a letter that George Washington wrote to, to uh, his, his dear friend, uh, Lafayette, to the Marquis de Lafayette. And hmm. in, I, I quote, only part of one sentence part of one sentence in which there are eight different allusions to the Bible in that one sentence. Wow. Now, what does that tell you? This, this, the Bible just permeated their vernacular. It was just oh, yeah. part of their, it was just a part of the language that they spoke. They knew it well. And by the way, there's a good reason for that. And that is the King James Bible was an ideal tool for literacy education. And so yes. we're talking about a generation of Americans where almost all of them learn to read with a copy of the Bible in front of them. Wow. That, that was, a, that was an amazing section that when you were going, I mean, it's overwhelming because you're, you're talking about how they learned English and from the Bible. And, and it's hard to remember that sometimes we take it for granted, basic literacy but this is a world where you can't just take for granted basic liter literacy. I mean, these people are on the frontier. They are yeah. working to survive and they're small towns. And yeah, I mean, what were they doing to learn 
and they didn't have Barnes and Noble. They couldn't just get what kind of books did they have? They might not be able to have very many books because it would be expensive maybe to procure a book. When you look around the world today, by the way, when you look around the world, Bible cultures are the most literate cultures. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we see this, we see this especially in the aftermath of the Reformation. Why? Because Protestants are are in, in essence saying we don't need the church or its priests to be mediators right. between God and man. We, as the priesthood of believers, you and I, we can approach the throne of grace directly. And if you remove the church and its priest as the mediator, you must know what God has to say. And so Protestant cultures tended to emphasize literacy education and an an accessibility to the Bible in the vernacular tongue. And so this becomes very much a part of the culture of, of Protestant nations. And that includes those 13 colonies on this side of the Atlantic. That was a, a really interesting part. I, I'm, I'm looking for it in your book uh, where you compare the language from Shakespeare, the language from Milton, and you say something like uh, Shakespeare uses like 13,000 to 20,000 different words. Milton uses a, a crazy number of words. Those would be advanced books. But the Bible, the King James Bible in particular, which is the Elizabethan tongue, uh, uses something like 6,000. Something, I think it's like it's seven, plain seven and to 8,000 words. And it's powerful, and it's it, the literary quality is there. It even impressed people like Thomas Jefferson, you know, who, who was a skeptic. And that's and, one of the reasons yeah. why the King James Bible was so useful as a tool for literacy education. It had a limited vocabulary, and yet it's able to communicate these profound ideas. And not only that, the the actual word length, the actual word length is quite short. Take any text of the King James Bible and go over it in your head and and notice how many words are single-syllable words. The Lord is my shepherd. There's only one word in that line that has more than one syllable. And, and that, that theme is over and over again. So it's a, it's a short, simple version of the English language that makes it very accessible to, to someone who's just learning how to read. Wow. Not only that, the King James Bible has a bias in favor of, of Anglo-Saxon words over Latinate words. Latinate words tend to have these compound words where they mash words up together. That's and so it makes it a very... Uh, a, a very strong, forceful language that has a kind of dramatic appeal. Again, I think it's 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 a kind of language that that uh, someone learning to read is is attracted to. So, if you were designing a book to teach people how to read, boy, you would be hard pressed to come up with a, a textbook better than the King James Bible. Yeah, that fits with some other some other reference to b- basic literacy that I was exposed to in seminary. Because when I took baby Greek, um, which is the, we call the first year of Greek, you start with the gospel of John. I mean, it's very common. And so the, the, that, that's been used to teach people Greek for a long time. And, and I happen to know from people that learn Latin that they do the same thing. They take the Vulgate 
and they take the Gospel of John, and they start with the language of the Bible in Latin, and that's how yeah. they were learning Latin. Um, my my professor, one of my professors that did his doctorate at Oxford in, in um, medieval philosophy, so he had to do everything in Latin, he said, yeah, I, I started with the Gospel of John, J Jerome, the Vulgate, <laughs> and uh, from an educator's point of view, the Bible was an incredibly useful tool for Greek, Latin, and English. Let me just mention something on page 61, which I thought was very interesting. This whole page, almost the entire page, you talk about congressional support for bringing Bibles in because there was a shortage during the war. This is fascinating. Now, this is before the Constitution, so it had been the Continental Congress but it's after the Declaration of Independence. And so, for example, uh, in 1777, there was a warning of an impending shortage of Bibles, and the clergymen went to petition the Continental Congress to underwrite a domestic printing of the scriptures. Congressional inquiry included that, concluded that it would be more expedient to import Bibles from continental Europe, that would be non-England, not England, than to print them in America. So you have these legislative committees debating on how to get something like 20,000 Bibles from Holland, Scotland, and elsewhere. Um, and what a fascinating episode of, of history where some of the earliest moments of the American government are deeply concerned about a shortage of, of Bibles as we fight the king. We, we fight King James. That's fascinating. Everybody, the, everybody listening on Apple Podcasts in the future and, and, and YouTube, this book is overwhelmingly, in a good way, overwhelming with detail and notes and references it, that's why it was such a challenge to figure out how to conduct this interview because it is so rich. Um, by the way, I should give you a compliment there, Daniel. I think that you sound like a preacher and I mean that in a good way. You have like, as a scholar, you're like passionate and you're bringing, you're bringing down the house as far as like a sermon here. So um, can, can you, uh, share with us something about what your daily life is like do you what kind of courses do you teach there in american what's it like to teach there yes well i tend to teach uh law related courses and uh, i enjoy teaching uh, courses on first amendment law and and things like that um, but uh, I also teach courses on things like criminal procedure and civil procedure. And, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I teach a, a number of what I would describe as legal history courses. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I have I have good students who uh, I enjoy engaging with and they they uh, they they press me and and uh, inspire me to to uh, be a better teacher. So it's a it's it's a good it's a good life. And you have what's called a DPhil, right? From Oxford? That's correct, right? That's yes. what they so, call the PhD. Uh, Oxford Oxford does not have a PhD degree. Uh, so their uh, comparable degree would be a DPhil which stands for Doctor of Philosophy. Okay. And what did you do that in? What was the subject? 
I was in uh, what was called the politics subfield. So okay. uh, they they they're one of those schools like Princeton that doesn't use the term political science. They choose <laughs> to use the term politics. Yeah, they yeah. sort of uh, avoid this yeah. idea of it uh, as a social science, but rather yeah. more of a, a theoretical, philosophical, historical discipline. I appreciate that. Claremont does it is a little odd because the master's that you get on the way to the PhD is a master's in politics, like okay. just like Aristotle. And then the PhD is in political science. So I don't know why they change it midway, like that midstream. But uh, the, the book is called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers by Daniel L. Dreisbach. The publisher is Oxford University. Oxford University Press, and there will be a link to it in the description on Apple iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Stitcher, people tell me I'm on Spotify, and uh, obviously in the description here on YouTube. And like I said, um, it's it's a very rich thing, and, and maybe you're not personally biblically literate, maybe you don't know where to start with appreciating this kind of material. I think a lot of people that study politics would be interested, but it might be a little daunting because they don't know the Bible. Can you give us, uh, Daniel, your um, any tips or any advice about how to go about achieving some measure of biblical literacy? I mean, where do you start? Read the Bible, right? Wow. Uh, certainly. Um let me just say this, and this might be encouraging to some of the listeners who, who, who you know, might be inclined to pick up the book. Uh, I, I, I truly did not sit, set out to write a book on this topic. It actually started out as some uh, Sunday school classes that I taught at my church. And, and you'll get a flavor wow. of that in the book. In the, in the second part of the book, what I do is I, I take up very specific biblical texts that were popular in the discourse of the American founding. And I asked the question, why were, why were Americans drawn to these texts? And, and, and what did they hear? What did they sense uh, was being said from these biblical texts? And I'm, I give a lot of emphasis, and, and this is why I think it made sense as a Sunday school class. I wanted to understand whether the American founders were reading the Bible in its proper biblical context. So each chapter has a little bit of a discussion of, of the verses that I look at, and I say, well, what was the Bible speaking to, and did the founders read it in a way that is faithful to the biblical context? And so uh, for someone who enjoys history or who enjoys reading the Bible, I think this is a book that, 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 that they will find uh, valuable and enlightening to them that that's wonderful and i would i would add to that that um biblical literacy i view it as a lifelong thing and i, I view it as a journey and i feel like i'm still on the journey and i i, I view american politics the same way i mean maybe i've achieved a certain level of mastery on some things but i feel like i'm constantly learning new things and i then never knew about before and I, and yeah. it's quite exciting and and i think looking at the looking at it as a journey is it's encouraging because you don't have to get you, you might be tempted to give up because it's so daunting <laughs> the yeah. the the level of material 
but that's okay. You just take a little bit at a time. There's lots of tools out there. Um, I took a, my first course I ever took on the Bible was at Monterey Peninsula College. It was a community college in California and it was in the English department and it was called the Bible as literature. And I had an English professor from Berkeley and he was a skeptic. So I was always arguing with him, but it was a delightful 20 people around a conference table in California there on the central coast just really grappling with what the text said and what yeah. does it mean? Yeah, it's, it's, it, I would say it's not only a lifelong pursuit, but it is a worthy pursuit of someone who aspires to be an educated citizen. Ooh, yeah. You know, how can you Big understand time. the most basic elements of our culture and our society, whether it be politics, as you, as, as we've been talking about today or law, uh, but also the arts, right? We mentioned earlier, how do you understand the Gettysburg Address without some knowledge of the Bible? Wow. Think of the greatest music ever written from, from Handel's Messiah. You can't begin to, to sort of comprehend the, the, that great work without understanding scripture to something as perhaps uh, uh, more mundane by, 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 by comparison. Think of that great folk song, Turn, 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 which draws on the language of, of Ecclesiastes, made popular in the 1960s by Pete Seeger. You remember that, that mm -hmm. song? Or, you know, yeah. or, or think of the great literature. You can't read and appreciate Shakespeare with its many allusions uh, to scripture mm -hmm. without some biblical literacy. Or, or think of Milton and Paradise Lost. Oh, or, yeah. or think of the great graphic arts, uh, Michelangelo's yeah. David, uh, without some knowledge of the Bible. So simply to be a, Steinbeck's, a well informed citizen Steinbeck's Steinbeck, east of Graves eden of and, yeah all of, of them, all of them that's draw the bible too yeah the burgers about the biggest from on, revelation on these great biblical themes and, and visual images yeah yeah, yeah. i mean or, or even like the battle hymn of the republic yeah. yeah i didn't hear what you said well even like uh ernest hemingway you know the, the sun also rises that's a direct quote from ecclesiastes yes yeah i mean it even these pagans <laughs> that are that are considered some of the, the giants of American literature recently were deeply involved in just struggling through the Bible. Yes. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Thanks for and having me. We are so excited to, to have this in the can. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate uh, this opportunity to, to, to converse with you. It's been a delight. Thank you.